continuing to make our way through this uh, book called Second Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth. And as you know, this this letter really is all about ministry. It's all about service. It's all about laying your life down for the sake of other people. And we've talked about that at great length. And then as we moved into chapter eight a couple of weeks ago, uh, we looked at the first 15 verses of chapter eight. And we see that in chapters eight and nine, uh, Paul really begins talking about giving and principles of of giving within the Christian life and the importance of giving. And of course, specifically, he's talking about the fact that they were bringing a gift to the church in Jerusalem. You remember that Paul had gone out to Corinth and to Ephesus and to these other regions around the known world and with the gospel, reaching out with the gospel to the Gentiles. And the church in Jerusalem was mainly made up of Jewish people who had gotten saved there in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. You remember that Jews lived all around the world. They would come into Jerusalem for those feasts. And the Feast of Pentecost was certainly one of those. And while they were there, God poured out His Spirit and 3,000 souls were saved. And this church was immediately born. And they didn't have jobs. They didn't have family connections. Uh, they didn't have a lot of the things that you would have when you grow up in an area or when you're a, more established in an area. And so here they are living in Jerusalem, and, and a lot of them had uh, become impoverished. That's why we find in Acts chapter 2 that they sold all their possessions and that they kind of lived communally. And it was because it was a need. Uh, not because it's something that we ought to be doing uh, today. It was something that was a need for that time. And so now Paul, understanding that there's a huge uh, need financially in the church in Jerusalem, he's been raising funds within these churches that he had planted throughout the known world. And one of them was the church in Corinth. And so he's now reminding them of this fundraising opportunity. And as we make our way through the text this morning, we're going to look at chapter 8, verses 16 through 24. And we're going to see three things in our text this morning. We're going to see Paul's recommendations. We're going to see Paul's desire. And then we're going to see Paul's request. So let's read our text and then we'll launch in to the study. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And, he, and we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. Avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, 
He is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. As we talk about giving here over the next few weeks, even moving into chapter 9, it really is not an aside at all from the theme of the entire book of 2 Corinthians, which has been about service. Because one of the greatest ways we can minister, one of the most effective ways in which we can serve people is by giving. When we give to the local church, we're helping to further the cause of Christ in that church, in that community. When we give to charities, we're enabling people to be fed and clothed. We're enabling uh, moms uh, who may have otherwise gotten an abortion to you know, bring their child into this world. There's lots of things in which we're doing when we give of our resources. And certainly our time and our talents would be a part of that as well. But, but here in our text, Paul is talking specifically about giving and how that giving is an important thing in our ministry, in our service to the Lord. And so the first thing that we see in our text is Paul's recommendations. He recommends three guys in which he's sending there to Corinth to receive this offering. Two of which are anonymous. He calls them brothers. And one is Titus, who they were very familiar with. And so I want to look at these guys and see some of the characters and the the character traits, I should say, of their life that have application into our life. First of all, Titus. It says in verse 16... That Paul thanks God because he had put the same earnest care for the Corinthians into the heart of Titus. And so one of the first things that we learn about Titus is that Titus was open to receive a burden. See, if it were me, I would not have a burden for these people there in Corinth. It amazes me that Paul had a burden for them at all, considering the way in which they had treated him, considering how they had just stabbed him in the back repeatedly. I think I would have given up on the church of Corinth a long time ago, but we even see Titus having the same heart that Paul had for these people. He had opened himself up to receive a burden for these people. I think if I was Titus, I would have said, you know, Paul, it really amazes me that you even care about these people at all, considering all that they've done. And if you want to go and minister to those people, that's good for you. But just go ahead and leave me out of it. Count me out of this one, Paul. I'm not really interested in being a part of this opportunity. But we find here with Titus that he had the same heart that Paul did. Because Titus was a guy who was open to receiving a burden from the Lord. And that's an important character quality in ministry. Is being able to have a burden for people. Being able to have a burden for the work of the Lord in your workplace, in your community, in your family. And it's something that's important, but it's something that is lacking. 
because we're willing to open our hearts up to only that which, you know, appeals to us. And serving people and ministering to people doesn't really appeal on a broad level. And so we often will close ourselves off to those things because we don't really want maybe some of the ramifications that might come along with opening our heart. But Titus was a guy that said, look, I want to have a burden from the Lord. I I want to have a a heart for people. I I want to have these things that are important to God on my heart. Not just Paul. It wasn't just important enough for Paul to have this burden, but Titus had it as well. And there's nothing that excites me more than to see people in the church, to see people that I'm ministering with have the same burden, have the same heart to reach people, to minister to people. But you have to be open to it. You have to open yourself up for God to put that burden on you. And the thing is, is if we launch out into ministry, if we launch out into serving God, and we don't have a burden for people, we don't have a burden for the work of the Lord, it's really going to be an effort in futility. We need to have the heart of Jesus who looked out at the people as a, as a shepherd. And He said, these are people who are lost. These are people that are wounded. They're people that are scattered. They're like sheep that have no shepherd. And He looked at them with compassion. That's the kind of perspective that we need to have in looking at people. Titus was not only a guy that was open to receive a burden, he was also a guy that was teachable. Look at the beginning of verse 17. It says, For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. Titus was not only open to receive a burden, Titus was teachable. It says he was willing to receive exhortation. Now, as much as having an openness to receive a burden is kind of a character trait that is lacking in the church, teachability is probably even more lacking. Because oftentimes you'll have people that want to serve, that have a burden for people, but then they're not willing at all to be told how to do that. They're not willing at all to learn, to grow. They're not willing to ask questions of how they might do a better job. They're not willing to receive instruction. They're not willing to receive exhortation. And when you do give them that, walls go up and and that shield of pride goes up and the defense mechanism goes up and and excuses, well, this is why I did that and, and blah, blah, blah. And there's all these things. And teachability is one of the most important character traits for those who want to be useful in the kingdom of God. It's very needful to be teachable. Now, I've found in my own life that I'm very teachable in those areas that, number one, I don't care a whole lot about, and number two, that I don't know anything about. It's pretty easy for me to be teachable about that. But you start to try to instruct me in the things that I consider myself to be pretty acquainted with, and now all of a sudden that's when my pride gets in there. So I consider myself to be pretty teachable when it comes to things I don't care about 
in things I don't know about. I mean, you could teach me all day long about fixing cars. You know, my dad knows all about cars. I'll listen to him all day. But if my dad starts to instruct me on how to teach the Bible, hey, hold on a second here. You know, I've been doing this a while. Have you ever taught a Bible study, Dad? You know, and and so that's when we need to be teachable is in those areas of our strengths, those areas that maybe we think we've got it together, not only in the things that we don't have a clue about. And I'll tell you, you're really prideful if you're not teachable in those areas. If you can't receive instructions in the things you're not any good at either, you've really got some problems. You really need to go to the Lord and have him break you. But it goes beyond that, too. We need to be teachable in those things that we might consider to be our expertise. And I'll tell you another way in which I find myself to be teachable is with people that I respect. I'll receive all day long from people that I respect, from people that I think have it together and people that are intelligent and people that, you know, have gone before me. But somebody that maybe I don't have a lot of respect for if they start to try to instruct me or they start to try to tell me how to do things, again, that wall of pride goes up. And so that's a way in which we need to be teachable as well. And Titus was willing to receive an exhortation. He was teachable. Some very important character quality, one that we need to ask God to instill within us. A third thing that we learn about Titus is that he was willing to put forth effort. It says that he was more diligent in that he went to them of his own accord. In the NIV, it says that he came with much enthusiasm of his own initiative. Not only was Titus having a burden for these people, but it was a burden that God placed on his heart. And then he made the effort to see this happen. Paul wasn't twisting Titus's arm. Hey, Titus, I really understand that you don't want to go, but you're going anyway, you know, and eh, you, you're, this is what you're going to do because I'm telling you to do it. And he's, you know, dragging his feet. He's complaining and he's muttering, you know, and he's talking about Paul behind his back. No, he wanted to go. This was on his heart and he made effort to do it. He put forth effort. And see, what I find is a lot of times people might even have a burden or a so-called burden. They might say, you know, man, I really want to see people in my family come to Christ. Or I really want to see the community touched with the gospel. Or, man, my workplace, everybody's a heathen there. And I'd really like to see people come to Christ. And then they just kind of leave it at that. It's a desire, but it doesn't go any further than that. What we see with Titus is that he was willing to put forth effort. Somewhere in our theology, we get kind of screwed up thinking that a desire is good enough. That a longing of our heart is good enough. Kind of like, you know, the guy that says, man, I really desire to have a job, and then he sits at home watching TV all day. It doesn't quite work that way. You've got to have more than just a desire. God doesn't honor just desire. You've got to go out and, you know, turn in applications and talk to people, and the same in ministry, the same in serving the Lord. A desire is good, but you've got to be the one putting out some effort as well. And we see that with Titus, that he stepped out, that he personally became involved in it. 
And we talked about this on Wednesday night. Um, We broke away from our study through Leviticus on Wednesday and we looked at Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus talks about the fact that the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. And it talks about the fact that going into the new year, I think this is a very pertinent idea that we have a huge opportunity to reach people for Christ in our community. And let's make it a desire of our heart this year to reach people for Christ in in our respective circles of influence. But it takes more than just desire because at the end of that section, Jesus said, pray that the Lord sends laborers into the harvest. Just like if you were to step out into an alfalfa field that's ready to be mowed down and, and baled. And you, man, this, this thing's ready. Somebody needs to come along and do this. If that's what the farmer said, it wouldn't be good enough. How long would that last? Yeah, th- boy, this is ready to go here. I'm wondering when somebody's going to show up to do this. It wouldn't work. He has to then put out effort. And, and so in our prayer for God to send out laborers into the harvest... I think it's kind of an empty prayer if we're not out in the harvest. If we're not out serving and ministering and doing those things that God has made available to us. And so, putting forth effort. What does God have for us? And how does He want to thrust us out into the harvest, into ministry in this coming year? And because of the character traits of Titus, he was open to receive a burden, he was teachable, he was willing to put forth effort. Down in verse 23, Paul says that he considered Titus to be his partner and his fellow worker because of those things that Titus had associated with his life. Well, there's a couple other guys that Paul refers to here, both anonymously. One is found in verse 18. He says that we have sent with him, that is with Titus, the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And so this is some anonymous guy who was known for one thing, his service to the Lord. He was known throughout all the churches for his service in the gospel. We have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel. Again, I think the NIV says his service, his ministry for the gospel. That's what he was known for. He wasn't known for his good looks. He wasn't known for his magnanimous personality. He wasn't known because he had this great sense of humor or that he was wealthy or that he was well-spoken or that he was intelligent. And none of those things are bad. But that's not what this guy was known for. What he was known for was his service. And I think of my life, and I think however long I live, I want people to look at my life and my legacy, and that's what I want to be known for. I want to be known for my service to the Lord, for my dedication to the things of God. And that's what this guy was known for. And a second anonymous brother is found in verse 22. It says, And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things. And so this third guy was a guy that had proved himself to be diligent. 
He had proved himself to be faithful. And that's why Paul was sending him. Paul wasn't sending him because he forced himself into the ministry. Paul wasn't sending him because of his potential. Paul was sending him because he was faithful. Because he was diligent. And oftentimes in ministry, you'll find people who want to be thrust into maybe what would be considered more glorious types of positions, whether it be leadership or Bible teaching or worship ministry. And they're not willing to do some of the things that would be more behind the scenes. And I saw this happen a couple years ago here in our church with a family that uh, began coming to the church and she told me that, you know, she wanted to get involved in, in worship. And, and I was excited about that. I said, hey, that's great, you know. And um, she told me what she did. And, in fact, her son was, was a, a talented uh, bass player. And, you know, and, and they, they really wanted to get involved in, in the worship ministry. Great. So I made some suggestions. I said, you know, why don't you just kind of hang out for a while, see what God would have for you. At that time, we our worship leader uh, had like a, a fellowship um, at his house, home fellowship, where they would just do worship and kind of learn new songs and, you know, encouraging people to get involved with that. So I, I encouraged them to go to that, which they never did. And I encouraged them to just kind of get involved with some other ministries. And this was the first week that, that they came, and they told me they were anointed for this. And then the second week, she came up and said the same thing, and I told her the same thing. Well, after about three or four times attending church, never saw her again, never saw them again. And she called me one day and said, you know, we're, we're anointed for uh, worship ministry, which that, that's a new one for me. But, um, you know, we're, we're anointed for this, and... You didn't let us use our gifts, and so we went somewhere else. I said, I, you know, that's fine. I, I'm glad that you found a place. But it wasn't that I wasn't letting you use your gifts. I just wanted you to get to know the church, wanted the church to get to know you, and wanted to see you diligent and faithful in the little things, which you weren't. And so that shows me a lot about you, if you're not faithful in the little things. And that's why we do that. It's not because I think that people who are talented or people that have gifts of leadership should be plugged away back in the background, scrubbing toilets and emptying trash cans for the rest of their life. But you ought to be willing to do that. And you ought to be willing to show your faithfulness. I remember early on in my ministry, you know, that's a lot of what I did was behind the scenes stuff cleaning toilets and emptying trash cans and handing out bulletins and, and, you know, doing things that, I mean, honestly, while I was doing it, I wasn't saying, you know, this is my dream. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life in ministry, you know. I, I wasn't thinking that or saying that, but it, was, it needed to be done. And so somebody has to do that. And I wanted to also prove my faithfulness. My diligence. Not that, okay, you know, Ryan is, is called to be a pastor. Ryan's called to be a teacher. So, you know, he's just going to get thrust right into that. We have to be willing 
to, in a sense, show ourselves faithful by doing the little things. And that's what this anonymous brother here was doing. He was diligent. He was faithful. Let's talk about Paul's desire. Verses 20 and 21. It says, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Paul's heart was to be above reproach with these funds that he was raising. He didn't want to be the only one that was associated with this endeavor. In other words, he didn't want to go to Corinth receive their money, then also take all of the money to Jerusalem and have it be like a one-man show. He wanted other people to be involved so that no one could look on and say, you know, that seems a little strange. I wonder how many, you know, tens and twenties Paul is stuffing in his pockets along the way. And not that Paul would have ever done that, but you raise suspicion if there's not accountability. And Paul wanted to be accountable in this matter. And I think it's extremely important, especially in the days in which we live, to be accountable, to be above board in all that we're doing with the finances of the church. I just read about a church recently that the accountant over a seven-year period had embezzled a million dollars. It blows my mind that the church wouldn't miss a million dollars. You know, that's beyond me. It's like, wow, you know. Um, I'd like to have that kind of a a budget that you don't miss a million dollars, you know. But um, be that as it may, obviously there, there weren't sort of those safeguards in place to be able to notice that kind of thing. And the way that we do it, from the very beginning of our ministry, we've wanted to have those kind of safeguards. And not that we have a perfect system by any means, but we have multiple people that count the funds, somebody else that records and accounts for the funds and accounts for all the expenses, and somebody else that does the depositing of money into the bank and then somebody else that actually comes and will audit the the person that is accounting. And so there is all kinds of checks and balances. The more eyeballs you have, the less chance for suspicion, but also the less chance for theft and temptation and error as well. And so that's why we do it that way. We want to be accountable. We want to be above board. And Paul says the reason that he was doing this was so that he would be honorable. And that not only honorable in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Now, I think there's kind of a smugness that can sort of develop in our life as a believer where we kind of say, you know, All I have to do is please God. So forget you. It doesn't matter how you perceive things at all. It doesn't matter what you see. It doesn't matter what you think. My number one priority is to please God, so forget you. Now, it's very true that our number one priority is to please God. And I'll also say this. You can't please everybody. 
You don't have to be alive very long on this earth. You don't have to be in ministry very long to realize that you're not going to please everybody. And so some people aren't going to like the way you do things. Some people aren't going to like the way money's spent. Some people aren't going to like the ministries that are developed. Some people aren't going to like the way that you do the ministry that you did develop. On and on and on it goes. There's always a critic. There's always a complainer. There's always a person that will judge and will criticize. That They're out there and they're going to be there. But if you develop this attitude, you know what? Forget everybody. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. All I have to do is please God. And so maybe relate that with church finances. There's nothing going on that would even be suspect. There's nothing wrong with the way things are being done. But it just doesn't look good. It kind of raises eyebrows. Just like if Paul had gone and got the money and taken the money and done it all himself. There may have been nothing wrong with that in that he wouldn't have ever stolen anything. But people might have thought, well, what is he doing with that money? How do we know that it's not being used wrongly? And so you don't want to give people any suspicion. You don't want to give an appearance of evil. And not only does that apply in ministry, I think it applies across the board for our entire life in that we want to be without blame in the eyes of men. It's my heart for ministry. It's my heart for my life. In that we aren't just saying, you know what, I'm not doing anything wrong, so it doesn't matter the way that you perceive things. Another example. We had a, a lady in the church that was involved in, in some ministry early on in our in our ministry, and she was uh, she began to to date a guy, and and there was some things that just didn't look good um, in the way they were doing things. He would be over at her house um, till all hours of the evening, and we actually had another couple in the church that lived right across the street, and it was brought to my attention, you know. Pastor Ryan, I don't know if, if anything's going on, but I just noticed that he's there till three or four in the morning. And I know they're not married, and I know she's involved in ministry, and so I just thought you ought to know. Okay. So Andrea talked to her about it. She, she got mad and left the church. Now, according to her, there was nothing going on. Hey, that's great. Praise God. I'm glad that there's nothing going on. But it doesn't look good. Whatever it is that you're doing, if you're, you know, playing rummy or, you know, watching 24, I don't know what you're doing, but it, it doesn't look good. And so maybe you ought to evaluate your practice here. You know, typically if what you're talking about and what you're doing can't be accomplished before midnight, it's probably, you know, a waste of time. And so I don't know what it is that you're doing, but... Maybe you ought to reevaluate. And, and all that happened was that she got mad and, and left. So we need to have a heart to not only please God. That ought to be our number one priority. So no matter what you're doing, it's pleasing God. But we also need to have a heart to not raise suspicion. To not give people an idea that you're doing something wrong. To not give an appearance of evil. And that's what Paul was wanting to do. 
Now, this is the thing, though. If you're doing everything you can to be at peace with all men, and you're doing what you can to not raise suspicion, and you're doing what you can to not give an appearance of evil, and people still criticize you, then don't worry about it. Just move on. Those kind of people aren't really worth your time anyway. You're not going to please everybody. And so that's kind of something I've had to learn along the way because I want to please everybody. I want everybody to like me. I want everybody to think that, you know, I'm doing a great job. And when people don't, I kind of take offense to that. But all that I can do is do my best. And when, you know, you receive criticism, honestly look at it and say, is there some truth to this? Is there something I can do better to be perceived differently? If there isn't, then throw it in the trash and move on. So these are some things that we learn from Paul's desire. His desire to please God, but also his desire to not give an appearance of evil, to be without blame in the eyes of men. Well, in verse 24, we find our last point, and that's Paul's request. Paul says, Therefore show to them, and before the churches, the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Paul's request is that they show their love, that they demonstrate it. The Bible says in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrated His own love toward us. Now, God could have just said, hey, I love you guys. You guys mean the world to me. But I'm sorry, you're all going to hell. And it it would not have compromised God's love because God is love. God is love. It's who He is. But God demonstrated His love. And love, you guys, needs to be demonstrated. It needs to be shown. And that's what Paul was asking of this church in Corinth. Demonstrate your love to the church in Jerusalem. Yeah, I know you said you care about them. Yeah, I know you said that you feel badly that they're hurting financially. But here's an opportunity to put your money, pardon the pun, where your mouth is. To show them that you really do care about them. And in fact... A year ago, you said you were going to help, and then we had all these problems and all this division and these false teachers came into the church, and now we've dealt with that, so let's bring onto the table this issue of the gift that you promised to the church in Jerusalem. Let's not forget about that. And just so that you don't forget about it, I'm sending Titus and a couple other guys, and, and they'll help you to remember, you know. And But Paul's saying, look, Show, demonstrate your love. And I think this teaches us a couple things. First of all, it teaches us that giving demonstrates our faith. Giving is a great demonstration of your faith in the Lord, of your trust in God. If you say that you trust God, but you do not give of any of your income to the Lord, then you have to really evaluate, you have to really ask God, do I really trust you? Because if I did, then I would be putting my most valued possession in your hands. Money has a great pull on our life. 
I remember even as a young kid, I thought about money all the time. I remember as a 13, 14, 15-year-old kid talking to my friends about how I was going to be rich. I remember writing a report about what I wanted to be when I grew up, you know, in eighth grade. And I said I wanted to own a pro baseball team and I wanted to be a businessman and all these things. My hero was was um, Alex Keaton on Family Ties. Remember Michael J. Fox's character? He was my hero as a kid. I just loved his whole persona. And money, you guys, I mean, it has a huge pull, even with young kids. I mean, my daughter's four years old. She has no idea what money does or how it's even, you know, relation, what relationship it has to, to getting things. I mean, you know how kids are. You go to the store, they think you just go in, grab it, and walk out, you know. Um, she doesn't understand how money works, but she wants it, you know. Which is great when they're small. Like the other night she put on a puppet show for us. I gave her a quarter. She thought it was a million dollars. You know, you give them a dollar and they think they're rich. But I don't know what it is, but even kids love money. They want money. I remember as a kid, I got $2 a week for my allowance. As soon as I got it, it was gone. I would ride my bike to the store and buy candy. it's carried over into my adult life, my affinity for candy. But as soon as I got money, it was gone. I've never been able to save well. It's never. I always wanted to be rich, but I didn't understand how to get there, you know. Just blow it and spend it right away. But as I got older and I came to know Christ personally at 15, my values began to change. And all of a sudden, I really didn't care about having a lot of money. All I cared about was serving the Lord. And it was an amazing transformation that took place in my life. But even when you don't have a lot of money, you can still be in love with money. You cannot be pursuing it, but still be in love with it if you're not willing to trust God with it. And so one of the greatest ways I think we demonstrate our faith, that we demonstrate our love for the Lord, is what we do with our finances. What we do with our income. That we're giving of the Lord with a cheerful heart, with a giving heart, on a consistent basis, as we're going to see next week in chapter 9. Purpose in your heart to give to the Lord. And it's not the amount that's important. Some people have a lot of money, and they can give a lot of money. Some people don't have a lot of money, but they can still give a lot in the eyes of the Lord. You remember the widow whom Jesus pointed out as being more honorable than any of the Pharisees who gave from their abundance. Oh, the amount they gave was much larger than hers. But she was more honorable. Because she gave out of her poverty. Giving really demonstrates where our heart is at with the Lord. And the second thing I think we learn from this is that the demonstration of our faith is important. The demonstration of our faith is very important. 
In other words, we need to be showing people that we are saved by our personal life. That people could look at us and they could say, yeah, that person knows the Lord. Jesus put it like this in Matthew chapter 7. You will know them by what? By their fruits. Notice Jesus didn't say you'll know them by the bumper sticker on the back of their car. You know, real men love Jesus or in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. You know, those kind of bumper stickers don't make you a Christian. Christian t-shirts, you know, instead of Abercrombie and Fitch, a breadcrumb and a fish, you know. Those kind of shirts don't make you a Christian. Our speech doesn't make us a Christian. There's a lot of people that I've been associated with who have shown themselves to be anything but a Christian who could speak very, very well in Christianese. Our speech does not in any way reveal that we're truly saved. What does is the fruit of our life. The fruit of our life. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul tells us what the fruits of the Spirit are. And those things will demonstrate that we truly know the Lord. And by them, people can look at our life and say, yeah, there's a difference about that guy. There's something that is attractive about that person that I I want in my life. See, James put it like this in James chapter 2. He said, it's not only faith that's important, but it's faith along with your works. And James said, you show me your faith, that's fine. I'll show you my faith by my works. That's how I'll demonstrate my faith. In fact, James went on to say that not only are we justified by faith, but we're justified by our works as well. James 2.24. It's a very interesting verse. It's one that kept James out of the canon of Scripture. That is those books of the Bible that we consider to be inspired by God. James was the last book to be included. Because they could not reconcile how in the world does James 2.24, that we're justified not only by faith, but by our works, how does that reconcile with Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapters, well, the whole book? How, How do you reconcile these things? And I think the only way that you can, and I think if you look in context to what James is saying, is that it's clear that in the eyes of God, we're justified by grace through faith. God doesn't care about our works in terms of whether that's going to get us into heaven because our works are like filthy rags. Our righteousness means nothing to God. He he can't be pleased by the little bit of righteousness we've done when our whole nature was corrupted. See? It's kind of like throwing some fresh water into a sewage pit. I mean, yeah, the fresh water's nice, but now it's polluted. That's how God sees it. But He sent His Son to die on the cross 
to bring forgiveness of our sins, to clear up that sewage pit. Now he's pleased with us. And now, you see, because our life has been changed, because our heart has been radically transformed, now we have a responsibility to be justified by our works, not in the sight of God, but in the sight of men. See? That's what James was talking about. That in the sight of men, in a very practical, down-to-earth, rubber-meeting-the-road kind of a fashion, we show people that we're saved by our works. There's something tangible that people can hold on to and say, yeah, there is something there, isn't there? It's not pie in the sky. It's not religion. It's a changed life. That's the key, you guys. That's what I want in my life. That's what I want for this church. That's what will make a difference in this community. Talking to people is great, and we need to do that. But talk is cheap if our life doesn't back it up. And so we need to demonstrate to this community, to our workplaces, to our friends, to our families, that Jesus is real. And we do that by loving people by meeting people's needs, by not retaliating when people hurt you and say things about you, by not gossiping. It's not rocket science, really, but it is difficult. It's not complicated, but it's challenging for sure. But showing forth the reality of Jesus It's done in very simple ways. It's basically living your life in such a way that people see a difference in you. And when we do that, that's when we are the light of the world. That's when we are the salt of the earth. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be a light in a dark place. You don't have to be much of a light to be noticed. Darken the lights in a room... And all you need is a little match, and it's very visible. You don't need a lot of salt to make a difference. I'm sure that over the holidays, some of you over-salted your food. And, you know, it's, it's a fine line there. You don't need a lot of salt. Because we don't have to do a lot to make a difference. We don't have to, you know, rack our brains about what we're going to do. We just need to let Jesus shine through us and meet people's needs. Spend time with people. Care about people. Pray for people. Minister to people. Be a blessing. Demonstrating the love of Christ in a very practical way. I love the fact that for centuries, the church has debated the things in the Bible that are ambiguous. You know, you can get on blogs and you can, you know, go to universities and get involved in debates and you can, you know, talk to people till you're blue in the face about some of these things that we'll never understand. How does God choose you but then give you a choice to choose Him? How in the world do you reconcile those things? We'll never know. 
How is God three but really one? I don't have a clue. How did God step out of heaven and take on human flesh and cease being God? I don't know. I have no idea. I know it happened. I believe it. How can God do everything and yet there's some things that He can't do? I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know the answer to that. How can God do everything, be all-powerful, and yet He can't make a rock large enough to not lift it, right? That whole thing. I, come on. We could talk about that until we die, but that stuff is so meaningless. Here's the thing. There's a lot of things that Jesus said when He was here on the earth that are real simple. And I think we ought to just concentrate on those things. Jesus said, love one another. Jesus said, provide for the poor. Jesus said, reach the lost. Jesus said, go out into the highways and byways and minister to those people that nobody else wants to. See, those things we can understand. We don't need to debate that. Nobody debates those things. And I'm not opposed to debate, but it ought not take up so much of our time that we're leaving out the things that we know we should be doing that aren't ambiguous at all. Demonstrating our faith, showing our love for one another is important. And it's something that I hope in 2007 that we personally and we as a church corporately can continue to do and can grow in so that we can influence this community for Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray together, you guys. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths, God.